You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Brought to you by Sage Summit Live, the virtual conference that provides all the highlights of Sage Summit from the convenience of your desk. Celebrity entrepreneurs, insightful workshops, absolutely free. Register at sagesummitlivestream.com. Only about 10% of Americans send text messages on their cell phones. Wait, Dan, are you, are you sure about that? That sounds kind of odd. Well, I was 13 years ago. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. It's Thursday, August 25. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Economics at Bloomberg in New York. I'm joined today by my co-host, Scott Landman, an Economics Editor in Washington. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Here's an amazing statistic. Only about 10% of Americans send text messages on their cell phones. That's got phone companies like Verizon and AT&T plenty worried. Wait, Dan, are you, are you sure about that? That sounds kind of odd. Well, I was 13 years ago. That was the subject of a perfectly serious Bloomberg News story from 2003 that lamented how Americans were laggards in the wondrous new text messaging technology. Think about it. Back then, Mark Zuckerberg was still at Harvard toying with an app he called FaceMash. He didn't launch Facebook until six months after we published that 2003 story on text messaging. Yeah, it's amazing how fast things have changed in that field. Uh, now we have apps that let you rent your home to strangers from the internet. Uh, driverless cars aren't just on the horizon. They're, they're being tested now uh, in Pittsburgh, what, uh, what we heard recently. True enough, but step back just a little bit and you can come to a different perspective on the pace of technological change. For all that Airbnbs and Uber seem to be life-changing, they aren't actually adding a lot to American productivity growth. Not at any rate the way the invention of the automobile, electric lights, and indoor plumbing had on the impact of civilization as a whole. That's according to Robert Gordon, a professor at Northwestern University and the author of The Rise and Fall of American Growth, published this year. Now, that's not to say America's economy, which is much maligned for its quote-unquote slow recovery, is going to stop growing. And it doesn't mean the unemployment rate won't continue to inch lower. It just means that all these new technologies that we have, that we've come to think of as so amazing, aren't in the broad historical sweep doing a lot for us. Professor Gordon joins us now. Hello. Professor, it's great to have you. I'm looking at a copy of the book in the studio here. 
and it's massive. It's almost as much of a physical weapon as Piketty's term on inequality. Now, Piketty captured the zeitgeist of the moment uh, with that, and you seem to have done that same thing this year. We seem to hear daily from Fed officials and prominent economists like Larry Summers about, quote, secular stagnation, unquote, declining productivity, lower neutral rates, and so on. But, you know, it's easy to forget the economy's been expanding since 2009. But, Professor, that's not your point, right? No, we've had this paradox of um, rapid growth in employment, 15 million new jobs since 2009, and at the same time, the growth in output has been very slow. Well, the resolution of that is very simple. We have rapid growth in hours of work, slow growth in output per hour. Put them together and you get slow growth in output. That is usually called real GDP. When you introduced me, you mentioned that uh, innovation has not paid off. That's not actually true. We've had a great revival of productivity back in the period between 1995 and 2005 associated with the utter conversion of business methods from the old days of the typewriter, file cabinet, piles of paper, to the world of personal computers, spreadsheet and word processing software, and then the Internet, search engines, and e-commerce. So we did get a big productivity payoff of the first round of the digital revolution back in the 1980s and 1990s. What's happened in the last 10 years is that the conversion to that new world of personal computers and laptops um, and getting rid of the paper, the conversion from card catalogs and paper catalogs to electronic uh, catalogs, uh, that's primarily been finished. Uh, We've made our transition to ATM machines for getting cash, barcode scanning for checking out of the Uh, supermarket, that's all happened more than 10 years ago. So it's the lack of really profound economy-wide impacting innovation in the past few years that's been the problem. How how did those profound economy-wide innovations actually impact the economy uh, in in the period of 1870 to 1940, as, as you talk about in your book? Well, those were the the innovations that completely altered the way people lived. We started out in 1870 with a country where almost half the workforce was working on farms as farm owners or farm laborers. We had, in the 70 years from 1870 to 1940 and then on through 1970, we had electricity uh, that made possible electric light, elevators, the urban city with its density, portable and fixed electric tools of all sorts in every industry, the internal combustion engine, motor cars, air transport, the invention of entertainment and communication devices like the telephone, radio, phonograph, movies, and television, and the utter change in life expectancy that came when we learned about the importance of germs, of cleaning up, of uh, having running water and sewage disposal, all those things happened during that relatively short period, and they were a much more profound change in the way people live than what's going on now with a smartphone. So it's not that Airbnb and Uber and Twitter are unuseful. Your point is it just doesn't give us that big oomph that this other stuff did. 
an Uber driver is a driver in a car, just like a taxi driver is a driver in a car. You don't get any increase in productivity. You do get an increase in consumer convenience, uh, and you do substantially increase the availability of uh, ride services when Uber will go into parts of town that the taxis don't serve. Uh, so it's a bonus for the consumer. And what we're seeing with social networks and all the different uses of smartphones is an improvement in consumer welfare that's not part of our GDP statistics and not part of uh, business productivity. When you're trading pictures with your friends through Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, you're not creating business output that generates productivity or wages. So that disconnect between total economy productivity and the consumer's well-being is an old, old issue that goes all the way back to things like running water and the transition from the horse to the motor car. We've always missed some of the benefits of inventions that consumers enjoy. Let's talk a little bit more about something you just mentioned, running water and indoor plumbing. Do you think they get the credit that they deserved in terms of technological breakthroughs. I mean, it's difficult to conceive people going on about that at cocktail parties in Brooklyn or San Francisco. Well, we've had we've had uh, indoor bathrooms now for a hundred years, so people take them for granted, and people take for granted most of the things I mentioned that were invented in that special century between 1870 and 1970. But that century really does stand out when you compare it with anything that happened before 1870 or what's happened since 1970. Look at the kitchen. All the home appliances that we now enjoy were part of the standard kitchen of the 1970s or even the 1950s, with the exception of a single device called the microwave oven, which came in in the 1970s and 1980s. We've had a lot of things that we take for granted now and that we'd hate to have to give up if they weren't there. Okay, a quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Sage Summit Live, the virtual conference that provides all the highlights of Sage Summit from the convenience of your desk. Celebrity entrepreneurs, insightful workshops, absolutely free. Register at sagesummitlivestream.com. And we're back. Professor, is there any chance that we could be on the cusp of another great century, similar to the one you described? We're just not seeing the signs of it yet? I'm very cautious. I don't predict out 50 or 100 years. I do uh, limit my predictions to 25 years. And I think most of the innovation and technology that's going to be permeating through the economy over the next 25 years is already evident. Uh, We have robots, we have artificial intelligence, computers are learning how to think, we have 3D printing, and we have the autonomous uh, vehicle with uh, a lot of hoopla and prediction of a very near-term conversion to autonomous vehicles, autonomous trucks, taxis, and cars. We have a lot of uh, fear-mongering that the robots are going to take over all the jobs. But if we look around us, go through your daily life and count how many robots you meet, uh, it's very few. And in most days of my life, it's done. As a matter of fact, our local supermarket is just in the process of taking out the self-checkout machines um, and going back to relying entirely on human cashiers. I'm not sure why they're doing that, but it is a sign that computer-driven technology is not everywhere. Probably, be, probably because those things didn't work so well. <laughs> well, they've been there for years, and 
they're very handy when you have a very small amount of just uh, two or three items and you don't want to wait in a long line past people who have great big market baskets. So maybe they'll have an express line or something to replace it. But the impact of robots has mainly been limiting to, limited to manufacturing. General Motors in, introduced the first industrial robot in 1961. So this is nothing new. We've had uh, robots in automobile factories welding the bodies, doing the painting for at least 20 years. And the new world of artificial intelligence and computer-driven intelligence is taking up a lot of innovative energy. But so far, the impact is in little niches of the economy rather than across the board. We've got voice recognition, language translation, uh, reading radiology scans, uh, some of the uses of uh, computer technology, uh, doing legal searches. Computers are really good for doing searching and can do it more efficiently than humans. So there's a very gradual transition to take advantage of these new technologies. But to go back to your original question, I don't see any great breakthrough for the next 25 years, and I'm humble enough to resist any uh, predictions of what's going to be happening 100 years from now. now Professor, the uh, the history in your book is really fascinating, and, and one of my favorite images is when you discuss how horses were the primary mode of, of transportation and the streets would just be filled with horse manure and urine and the stench would be terrible and people would get stuck in it and uh, you know how much that has changed over since then is just really amazing. You know, it sounds like in one way we're, you know, the the economy or productivity is going to be stuck in horse manure for for some time. Which brings me to the point of uh, you know, we we spend a lot of time here at Bloomberg writing, listening to people talk about secular stagnation, debating that, and and whether interest rates are are going are basically permanently lower, moving permanently lower over time. It's a debate that the, the Fed is, Federal Reserve is very actively having right now. Uh, is it fair to say that you, you come down on the, on the side of there being secular stagnation right now and interest rates you know, staying very low for a long time? Yes. The diagnosis that I have developed is that this lack of economy-wide impact of today's innovations is pulling down the rate of productivity growth and the rate of growth of the economy overall. Uh, and that's led to a reduction in interest rates that is going to be a, a long-term phenomenon. Uh, this has a lot of profound implications, uh, starting with pension funds, which are no longer going to be able to achieve rates of return of 7 or 8% that are built into their assumptions about the future. Indeed, we're going to have a a world in which it's much cheaper to borrow money. Uh, the effects of the federal debt are less ominous when interest rates are going to continue to be down around one and a half or two percent for the ten-year bond rate, rather than at four or five percent. And um, the latitude for the Fed to raise short-term interest rates, as they themselves are publicly recognizing, is much less than before. If you ask people three or four years ago, they were assuming that the Fed fairly shortly would be raising interest rates gradually back up to 4 or 5% as they did before 2007. But this time, they're not going to do it. And they're hesitating because it appears that the economy's um, long-term interest rate has substantially declined. 
leaving aside the absence of big bang breakthrough inventions, what role does demographics have? It's a hot button issue right now in the United States. But immigration, for example, is at least renewing the population and the labor market here. Well, we've had a major turnaround that can be described under the heading of demographics. If you look at the growth of the labor force, in the last half of the 20th century, the last quarter of the 20th century, uh, it grew at about 1.5% per year. Uh, It's now growing at about a half a percent per year, slower than the rate of population growth because of the retirement of the baby boom generation that pulls people out of the labor force even though they're still in the population. Um, If you take that turnaround in the growth of the labor force, it accounts for a full one percentage point of the decline in overall GDP growth. And that's something that's not going to go away. Uh, The baby boom generation will continue to be retiring uh, starting around 2008 and going through about 2035. We will be having a continuing downward uh, drag on the growth of the labor force. Um, and so when you put that together with slow productivity growth, you see that there's just not that much room uh, for robust economic growth of the type that we had back before 2007. In the next two largest economies, China and Japan, their demographic situation is even dire than the one you've just described. That's right. And one of the reasons that uh, of course, China and Japan have a rapidly aging population. Much more, a much larger percent of their population is over the age of 65 than is true for us. And in China, uh, they've imposed that on themselves with the one-child policy. In Japan, they've imposed that um, on themselves partly by low fertility and also by a society that is absolutely impervious to immigration. Um, whereas we have a lot of latitude to raise our own rate of population growth and with it the rate of economic growth by a uh, reform in our immigration uh, policy. We could follow Canada and Australia by developing a point system by which um, people are admitted with uh, points based on their earning capacity, on their education, um, people who would come to the United States and be able to start companies, to get good, solid jobs, pay taxes, and uh, help our economy grow faster. Uh, so uh, in my mind, uh, those who were opposed to immigration and those who were uh, <clears throat> trying to deport uh, those who were unofficially uh, here without proper, uh, without citizenship, are going in absolutely the wrong direction if they're interested in future economic growth. Well, that, that's a nice segue into into our next question, which is, of course, on our minds, the presidential election. Is there anything that the next president can do about the slowdown in productivity growth? Uh, Paul Krugman, for one, thinks not. It, it's really about technology, not policy. What, what are your thoughts? Well, there's a great uh, call from both candidates and economists like Paul Krugman and Larry Summers for a massive program of infrastructure spending. Um, I think the case for that becomes very strong when you consider how low interest rates are and how we can the government can borrow at very low interest rates to finance repairs of highways, bridges, subsidies to uh, improve and extend mass transit in many places where it's lacking. Um, and caution I would have about 
uh, more infrastructure is that that's not necessarily going to revive um, productivity growth. The construction industry that would benefit the most from infrastructure spending is one of the most prehistoric industries in terms of its productivity and technology. Uh, most construction is still being done with machines that look very similar to those of the 1950s. And that's just one um, kind of public investment. Um, I'm a big believer in urge in the last part of my book, um, major attention to preschool education, especially through the poverty population, uh, going way back but before age three and four, almost to birth, in providing advice and counsel to mothers on how to raise children and trying to get over this tremendous vocabulary gap that afflicts uh, poor children compared to middle class and uh, upper class uh, children. The average poor child um, enters kindergarten with about a third the vocabulary of um, normal middle class children and that handicaps them throughout school and leads to dropping out of high school, leads to more proneness to crime, and much less uh, chance of getting a college education. This is all pretty sobering stuff, Professor. Before we go, is there anything that Americans can feel optimistic about, or at least relatively optimistic compared with other countries? And in fact, I just want to add that uh, we have a uh, story just out that shows that U.S. productivity in manufacturing is actually the best in the world, according to Boston Consulting Group. That's by uh, my colleague Michelle Jamrisco here. Yes, the the ray of optimism that we can end with is is that the United States is still ahead in uh, of all but a, a couple of small countries in the level of its productivity. And we are entering a period of the next two or three years, which I think will go down in history as some of the best years of American uh, of the American economy. We're going to continue to create jobs. The unemployment rate is going to continue to go down toward where it was in 1999 and 2000, down closer to 4% than 5%. And as a result, it's going to be easier to get jobs. Um, firms are going to compete for workers and push up wages. So we're going to begin to see um, improvement of wages and maybe a little bit of a hiatus in the rise of inequality. Uh, so I think we're in for a good period of years with no uh, no symptoms of an on, onset of a recession. We've made it through the um, period of the strong dollar without the economy uh, faltering. Uh, job growth continues to be strong, and I think it's going to bring many benefits to workers who've been up to this point left behind. Professor, thank you very much. We'll okay. let you go. We have some housekeeping to do to wrap it up, but thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can also find me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman and Dan at, at Daniel Moss DC. Maybe next week we'll have something we can feel really good about. <laughs> See you next week.
brought to you by Sage Summit Live, the virtual conference that provides all the highlights of Sage Summit from the convenience of your desk. Celebrity entrepreneurs, insightful workshops, absolutely free. Register at sagesummitlivestream.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.